Well, I might sound like a broken record for those who perhaps have been uh, uh, coming over the last uh, few services. Uh, this week, last week, we've been uh, very much in flow with the season and uh, considering the coming of our Lord. So I'll, I might si sound a little bit like a broken record, but I, f I feel it is important. I know it is important for me to emphasize this right at the start. The day we celebrate tomorrow, the 25th, the Christmas, which traditionally is the day uh, on which we celebrate the, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ has nothing to do with Scripture. The 25th of December is not found anywhere in Scripture. Mine's more uh, brilliant uh, than uh, I could ever wish uh, or, or hope to, to be, have even gone as far as to say that most definitely it wasn't around winter. Um, and I do understand what they say here. So we don't know which day our Savior was born. And I would argue that it, that is a, a good thing. Because the day in which he was born is irrelevant. But the fact that he was born is totally meaningful. So, and although we do not know the day, traditionally it's been celebrated in uh, the 25th of December at least in Western society, at least in Catholic countries or Protestant countries because they took some of those traditions from the Roman Catholics. The Orthodox celebrated in different, uh, a little bit later, I believe. But I honestly think it is a pity. Now, again, not to sound like the uh, Ebenezer Scrooge or, or the Grinch, whichever is the, the, your preferred character of uh, that, that is a, a killjoy of, over Christmas, I, I believe it is a pity that we only celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, that we only get to sing these wonderful hymns once a year. We should be able to sing them every, uh, in every season of the year, in every month of the year, because very much these hymns are, are, are hymns that, that speak to the gospel, that speak to the good news of salvation. And it is unfortunate that we only get to sing them once a year. But nonetheless, I'm happy. I like the hymns. Last week, we had our, a brother, a dear brother from, from Uxbridge Rose Tabernacle come in uh, to, the, to the Christmas, um, Sunday school Christmas service. And he, he would like to say, preached the sermon on the gospel from the, the wording, the lyrics of of hymn 11 there in our booklets. Hark the herald angels sing. What a glorious hymn. And what a shame we only sing it uh, a few times in December. But anyway, I'm glad that we get to dust them off, sing them, that we get to consider these truths uh, at this time. And I want to consider a, a carol. I want to consider a hymn. Not a hymn that was written by, by any hymn writer uh, in the... Uh, in the New Testament age in that sense. But the first of all Christmas hymns, the first hymn that was Christmas hymn that was ever sung, and it's there for us in verse 14 of Luke chapter 2. This first hymn was sung by the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill 
to man. This hymn, this carol, this, this wonderful uh, praise to God answers for us the most pressing questions that we seek answer for around the Christmas time. What are those questions? Why is it that Christ came? Why, what did Jesus come to do in this world? What did God accomplish in the incarnation of his son? That is the, the question, and that question is answered in this small verse. What is the reason for the coming of the Lord? Well, it's to give God the glory, and it's to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But before we come to consider more, um, uh, more deeply these, these two truths, let us just have a sense for what is happening here at, in Luke chapter 2. I realize that for most of us this passage is familiar, but sometimes, even for those of us that the passage is familiar, let's all be honest, familiarity sometimes breeds a little bit of complacency, doesn't it? So let's consider a little bit of, the, of what's going on here. As we saw from reading... It is the time which, in which our Lord uh, is born. And there were a group of shepherds, shepherds in the fields by night watching their flock. Incidentally, in passing uh, as well, this is one of those places in Scripture that proves the veracity and the reliability of Scripture. What is one of the accusations that critics uh, of Christianity make? Oh, it was all a made-up story. It was all uh, a work of fiction. Some people get, gathered together uh, uh, decades, if not centuries later, and they, they conjured up this story uh, to fool the masses. I must say, if that was the case, they, they did a really bad job. They could have done a better job if that was the case. Because shepherds were not the uh, uh, well-looked-at uh, group of people in the first century. Shepherds were, were, were people who were unlikely to be reliable witnesses. In the days of, the Lord, of our Lord, shepherds be belonged to a, a class of people that were uh, unclean and impure. In virtue of their job, uh, in virtue of their, of their uh, career, vocation, let's call it, they were, uh, very, it was very hard for them to keep all those laws that, that the Pharisees had, had established for, for purity's sake. And the, on the other hand, they were also not the, the most honest of people. One commentator says that uh, the shepherds were seen as uh, some uh, people who had difficulties with the concept of, uh, of private uh, property. They... They, they would confuse what is theirs with what is uh, uh, another person's. They were thieves a lot of the times. So many, uh, in many places and in many cases, as the historians of this period tell us, uh, their, even their testimony was non-admissible in the court of law because of this. So if this was all made up, if this is all a work of fiction, one must ask why Luke was, was uh, or whoever was trying to pass himself for Luke, uh, would choose such unreliable witnesses. Not just here, you have the women uh, uh, being the, the, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. 
it is most it would be likely if someone was inventing this they would have chosen perhaps someone more honorable in first century Jewish society but nonetheless these shepherds are there tending to the flock by night text says that in the middle of the night as they were there verse 9 they be, be and behold an angel of the Lord stood before him, and the glory of the Lord shone around him. The glory of the Lord was the visible, is the visible manifestation of God's uh, presence, of his special operating presence. It was the glory of the Lord that was present in the temple before the glory departed a couple of times, but ultimately, as we find records in the book of Ezekiel, the glory departed never to return. It was the glory of the Lord that was present uh, when, the Egypt, when the Israel left, uh, uh, was released from Egypt in, in the Exodus. It was the glory of the Lord that shone around them. What a wonderful preamble. That as the Lord of hosts, the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, takes on human flesh and comes to dwell on the earth as he is born. Now the glory of the Lord appears once again. No longer in the temple, no longer in the tabernacle, but now in the fields. Perhaps uh, being a, as a, a sort of a preamble for that, that which Christ also said to that Samaritan, uh, to that woman by the well. But she said to her, there will come a time where we will not worship on this mount or that mount. There will come a time when, when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Because that is what the Father desires. No longer constrained by four walls. And in this vision, this vision of, of the glory of God, as so often is the case in the Old Testament and in the New it happened to Mary, just, uh, just a few uh, chapters is recorded for us in, uh, in, the, in the previous chapter, that is. It produced a sense of fear. They were afraid. They trembled because they were in the presence of the Almighty God. But the angel says to them, do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings. I bring you the gospel. I bring you good news. I bring you the, the gospel of great joy, which will be to all people, not just for you, but to all people, for there is born to you, not to Mary, but to you, this day in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is a Savior who is born. He was born to you. He was born in a specific place. This is not some made-up story of fiction. He was born to you in a specific place in the city of David, in Bethlehem, there outside, the, the few miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus was born. The Messiah that was foretold by the prophets. The Messiah, the, the seed of the woman that was said, uh, that was promised by God himself. There in Genesis 3, he has come. That long-expected Savior, that, that branch of Jesse, he has come. And he gives them a sign. It's, it's, you will find there in, the, in, the, in Bethlehem a child wrapped in swaddling clothes 
and lining in a major. These days, people recreate the, the nativity scene, but they, they completely miss the mark. I'm not the biggest fan of those nativity scenes, as I've told you, because it completely misses the mark. It's all so nice and pure. The, the, there's snow, which is already a, a, anachronistic. There is no snow. Or it's already a, incoherent. There is no snow in Bethlehem at any point, as far as I know. But it's always all so pristine, so pure. That was not the case. It was not uh, some nice uh, uh, hygienic uh, cave that Jesus was born. He was born in a stable. I don't know if you've ever been to a stable. It's not the most hygienic of places. But that's where he was born. A stable in those days. I, I did some research. A stable uh, in an inn like that in those days was, was very much common. And it was uh, uh, the ground floor of a, of a larger complex that was the inn. It was the ground floor because as uh, people would come to, to, as, uh, to, to the inn as uh, clients, as, as customers, uh, they would have to have somewhere to park their animals. Very much like we, when we drive into a hotel, we need to park our cars. And the, and the inn, there would be this uh, underneath the house in the ground floor, underneath the upper room where, where the people would live and where they, where they would store food and, and those sort of things. There would be a, a, a room. And in that room or in that stable, that's where they would keep the animals. And very much because Bethlehem was a city overcrowded because of the census that was called when Mary and Joseph get there, the only place for them is that place. There was no room for them in the inn. They needed to, to be in the stable. And that's what, where they found themselves. And it's wonderful. Jesus was not born. The Son of God was not born in Herod's palace. He was not born in some palatial uh, place, in some fancy place in Rome, in Athens, or in Jerusalem. He was born in a smelly, unhygienic stable in a town outside of Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. Christ was born there. And suddenly, there at verse 13, before we get to verse 14, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, just want you to picture this because we need to use our imagination not to invent things but to picture what, what scripture is telling us. I need you to imagine this. There were no lights in the middle of the field in first century Judea. There was no electricity. And as the shepherds are there, perhaps at in the best of cases with a, with a small campfire, all of a sudden a multitude of hundreds and hundreds or thousands of, upon thousands of angels, they appear in the sky. And they praise God and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Incidentally telling us why Christ came. For what reason Christ was born? What was God's uh, goal in sending his son into this world? Christ was born, number one, for the glory of God. And number two, to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So let us look at, that, at it by, in order. 
Because in no doubt, it is an extraordinary blessing that Christ was born for us. But you see, in Scripture, we're not the main characters, are we? We're not the, the center and the be-all and end-all of everything. We're told even here in this verse that the reason why Christ came into the world was not primarily because of men. We, this is very offensive to us because we like to think that we are the center of the world, the center of the universe. But here we read, first and foremost, Christ came into the world for the glory of God. That's why he came. That's the reason why he came, that God would receive the glory. Brothers and sisters, my friends, if we are to properly understand the meaning of Christmas, if we are to properly understand, let's stop calling it Christmas, if we are to properly understand why Christ came into the world, we need first and foremost to understand that it was for the, for the, the reason of God's own glory. That is the starting point of the gospel. The fruit of that glory we'll see in a moment, but it's first and, first, first and foremost that God will receive the glory. Perhaps I need to explain this a little bit, don't I? And I need to, to hasten, but what is to the glory of God? What is to give God the glory? When, when we understand and we know that God is glorious, infinitely glorious in and of himself, how, do we, how can we give glory to someone who is already infinitely glorious. How can someone in, in some way add to that glory? That is not the case. Paul says in Corinthians that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or you do anything else, do it for the glory of God. And what does that mean practically? It means that whatever we do, even the most trivial of things, even the smallest things, the most... Uh, uneventful things in our lives, we are to do it in such a way that, that God's fame, that God's character, that God's uh, person receives glory. We're to do it in such a way that, that his glory is manifest, that his glory is, as another word in scripture, magnified. So in very much the, the, the way it works is that we become like a, a, a spotlight shining to to bring glory, as we bring glory to God, shining upon God. That's the, what it means here, to give God the glory. He already has it, but we act and we, we behave and we, 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 we do things in order to, that God would be magnified. The word of God says, doesn't it, that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. God created everything for his own glory, including man. As we read in Genesis, we were created for his glory. No created thing in this world was created for any other reason than to give God the glory. But here is the problem, isn't it? That we were created for his glory. That we were created to, to, uh, to worship him and to, to praise him. That we were given uh, uh, faculties and, and gifts. That we were equipped for this very reason, and yet we do not do it. 
That is the problem of mankind. That is what sin is. We are created for a purpose, and we fail to do that purpose. God gave us minds and intellects so that we would understand his word, so that we would know his will. God gave us a mouth so that we would praise him. God gave us a heart so that we would love and cherish him. And what do we do with all those things that God has given us? What is it that we do with it? We use those very same faculties that God has given us for the one purpose of bringing glory to him. We use those faculties to bring glory to ourselves. We use those faculties to please ourselves. We use our mouths to honor and to magnify ourselves. That is sin. That is the problem. Let's say tomorrow... Let's say, not tomorrow, because it's Christmas. I don't want to ruin Christmas. Let's say next week, a plot is unraveled that there was a group of people that were plotting a terrorist attack upon this nation, upon the king, King Charles. That's terrorism. But then you discover that the people who were plotting this, they were high uh, um, officials of government, they were the military officers, the people in high-ranking places in, in military, and they were using the very same instruments and, and, uh, and facilities that were given to them to protect the people, to, to attack the people. That, doesn't, that, that is no longer terrorism, that becomes treason. Brothers and sisters, my friends, that is very much what we are as sinners. We use the very same intellects, the very same instruments and, and the gifts and the equipping that God has given us for the one purpose of praising him and glorifying him to bring glory to ourselves. It's treacherous sin. And that is the problem. And that's why Christ came into the world to bring glory to God. How, how does that work itself out? That God receives glory by doing this. The Messiah is born so that the righteousness of God would be upheld. The Messiah is born so that the righteousness of God would be upheld. It's not very usual that we think of Christmas as the righteousness of God being upheld. We think of Christmas and we think of love. We think of grace. We think of mercy. But there is a, 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 a first element of righteousness here, isn't there? We don't often think about it, but it is the, the case. The Messiah was born. He willingly came so that his, the righteousness of God would be upheld, so that he would receive the glory so that the infinite justice of God would be manifest. Remember that, that to glorify God is to, to do something, or to act in a way that magnifies uh, his fame, his, his um, glorious nature, his honor. And that's what Christ came to do. He became incarnate. The word was made flesh so that God could... And would be able to show his love in a way that is conducive with his righteousness. You see, God cannot simply love us. That's the great dilemma of scripture, isn't it? 
The great dilemma of, uh, of the gospel, the great dilemma of, of, of the Bible, is that God cannot be just and at the same time justify sinners. Or should not be just and at the same time justify sinners because that's unrighteous. If you've, made, if, you, if you've sinned, if you've broken the law, you need to pay the consequences of it. But you see, in the coming of, of, the, of God the Son, God in a the, in the glorious, awesome way, in one, as they say, fell swoop, he fixes the dilemma because Christ comes so that God's righteousness would be upheld and at the same time God's love would be manifest. It's that wonderful psalm that I love that justice, righteousness and, and peace have met together. They've kissed on that cross. Righteousness, justice and mercy meet together and they kiss and they are in perfect uh, uh, harmony with one another. God can be, as Paul says, both the, the just and the justifier of the wicked. That's how God receives the glory. Because, brothers and sisters, we were not worthy of his love. We are only worthy of the wrath. And yet, in sending his son, and in, in raining down the wrath that was meant for us, God upholds his righteousness so that we can receive his love. And that's the second point, and I'll be quick, uh, as quick as I can here. Not only God receives the glory, the first primary goal of the coming of Christ, but also as a consequence, as a fruit of this coming, we receive the peace and the goodwill of God. You know, Christmas should remind us, shouldn't it? That there is something wrong with men. That there is something very wrong with, with mankind. That's not the case. Christmas is often a, a time of, uh, of forgetting about these things. But the, one of the thoughts that we should have is that Christmas is a time where, when we should consider that sin is the great problem. Because it is at Christmas that that problem began to be resolved. It is at, at the coming of our Lord. I said I was, wouldn't use the word Christmas and I'm using it. It's at the coming of our Lord that at, at the advent of our Lord that the problem begins to be resolved. And a child is born as, as the, the, the prophet said, as the angel said as well to the shepherds, a, a, a son is born to... To you this day as, uh, in the city of David as Savior, it's to you. It's for you and for me. The, be the, the birth of Christ is, f is not the birth of a son to marry. It would be very sad if that was the case. But no, it's to you, he says to the shepherds. It's to you if you believe in him, if you turn from your sins. To you is born this day a Savior. To you is born the Savior, is Christ the Lord. And as the, the, the prophet says, of the increase of his government, there should be no end. Because there is 
peace. The vastness of his kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. And he's bringing that peace. And here at, the, at this point in time, when, as the Savior is born, the angels say, it's peace that he has come to bring. That is the good news. And you ask, what kind of peace? Is it the peace like the world gives it? No. It's a peace that the world doesn't understand it. It's a peace that, that is uh, so much more than just a ceasefire between two countries. People these days, they say, oh, there was a, a peace deal signed. But what it really means is that the strife and the, the war finished for a moment or season. But it might as well come back later. But the peace that God gives is a peace that is enduring. It's the peace of God. And we only have the peace of God. Brothers and sisters, that's what scripture tells us. We only have the peace of God because now we have peace with God. That's what Christ came to do. And that's how he brings peace on earth. Through making peace. Through his shed blood. On behalf of enemies, sinners like we are, undeserving like we are, on behalf of us, so that now we may have the peace with God, that we now may enjoy peace of God, the peace of God. You see, brothers and sisters, my friends, salvation, and I've said this, and I stand by it, Salvation is not of works. But there is a sense of where salvation is a result of works. It's not just, the problem is it's not your works. Or the, the good news is that it's not your works. It's the work of Christ. Through his coming, Christ came and accomplished or purchased or uh, acquired peace on that cross. That's what Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says. That we have been justified by faith. Paul says, and now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's, that's how God came and resolved the problem, that great dilemma. We were enemies, we were sinners, and God sends his only begotten son, the son he loves, to be born in this world and to die a substitutionary death on Calvary so that now... The debt was paid, we can have peace. We who were once enemies, as Paul says, God proves his love for us that while we were still enemies, Christ died for our sins. The wrath is removed, the, the, the enmity is removed, the walls of separation, the, 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 the chasm, that the, 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 the Grand Canyon that, that existed between us and God in Christ is bridged and now we can have peace with God and we can have the peace of God incidentally that, that brings us to the other problem I know we're presenting a lot of problems today but, but there is the problem of those who are not in Christ if God is peace and if the only way we can have the peace of God is through having peace with God, incidentally, or out of consequence, out of necessity, if you're not at peace with God, if you're outside of Christ, you can have no enduring peace. And whatever you think is peace is not real peace, is it? 
And you know this. I don't need to say this. Because that, uh, that is very much the problem with our world. Why is there so much uh, psychological uh, trouble in our society? It's because we've, we've left God out of the picture. We want to have peace and we want to, have, to, to resolve things by our own wisdom and intellect. You know what's going to fix that? It's not more medication, it's not more antidepressants, it's not more anxiolytic uh, uh, medication. It's uh, the peace in the, in, between nations in this world, what's going to fix it is not some kind of brokering a peace deal. The, the situation in Russia, Ukraine, Israel, and Palestine, the, the, it's not going to be resolved in any other way but by the, the reality of Christ becoming true in the hearts of those who are there. You cannot have peace without having peace with God. It is impossible for someone outside of Christ to experience true peace. Romans chapter 15, Paul, as, after he has brilliantly expounded the, the realities of the gospel in Romans chapter 15, um, verse 13, he says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in, the ho in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace the, the language of being filled with something in scripture is always meant as language that, of something that overpowers you. If, you're, uh, if someone in scripture is filled with wrath, it means that the wrath was so great that it overpowered them and, and it, it, it demonstrated itself in action. If someone is filled with joy, it means that joy filled him, filled him to such a point that he started dancing and, and jumping and he was filled with joy. And when it says here that you would be filled with peace also means that we are overpowered with that peace. What does that look like? The peace that God alone can give. It's a peace that brings us comfort and rest that takes away anxiety even in the midst of sorrow. It's a peace and a joy that can exist and coexist even with the most trialing and troubling circumstances. Why? Because we know there is a God and we are at peace with him. So whatever is happening in my life now, whatever difficult, uh, trialing, tempting, testing circumstances I go through, I know that I'm at peace with him. So whatever is happening to me right now is not God punishing me, it's God being good to me because the wrath was taken away at the cross. And that's how we enjoy that peace. And that's how we are filled with that joy and peace. Paul says, doesn't he? Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything with prayer and petition, come to God. Take your problems to him. Why can you do that? Because you're at peace with him. And you ask, what, what does the, word, uh, for, uh, the Greek word for nothing there means? It means nothing. It's nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Why? Because you know that God 
whom you serve because you know the price that was paid for you to be at peace with him. That peace is, is yours in Christ Jesus and the goodwill as well. Goodwill towards man. Christ's coming is for the glory of God and is to bring peace and goodwill to man. Jonathan Edwards, the old uh, theologian, he, he spoke of love, which is basically what Christ came. He came to demonstrate, uh, to magnify, glorify God, and, Christ, and he came to demonstrate God's love. Because of, and because of that, we now have peace. And Jonathan Edwards, he used to say that there are two types of love. You can divide love in many different types. Some people divide in three, four. But Jonathan Edwards spoke of two. He spoke of a love, uh, as he said, of uh, benevolence and a love of complacency. A love that is a love um, that is complacent, that allows things to happen. Well, not going to do anything. I'm going to allow it. But there is a love that is uh, more intentional. And he's, he says this... Uh, to demonstrate that the, God, the love that God has, dem uh, has showered upon us in the sending of his son is not a love of complacence, but it is a love that flows from his goodwill. It, it is a love that sought out his people. It is a love that sought us while we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses so that he could demonstrate his benevolence, his favor, his goodwill towards us. And brothers and sisters, that's what Christ came to do. To bring glory to God, first and foremost. And as a consequence of bringing that glory to God, he showered us with his love. So that God would, again, receive the glory. You, want, want, you ask me what is the, the greatest Christmas present that you can receive my kids probably think, uh, have all kinds of hopes and, and dreams uh, of the years, uh, not, not to quote the, the hymn, the hopes and, dream, and fears of all the years, um, about what they're going to open in a few hours. We, we opened the Christmas gifts in Portugal um, on the 24th. They're hoping for the greatest of gifts. Do you know what the greatest of gifts is? Whether this evening whether tomorrow morning, whether throughout the, this next year, the greatest of gifts is this, to know God, to enjoy his peace, to be filled with joy and peace that God alone can give. The greatest of gifts that can ever be given is that peace that him alone can give to you through having peace with himself. Because he made him, as Paul says, who knew no sin, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, whom we read being born in Luke chapter 2, he made him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. Out of his goodwill towards men like us. Out of his goodwill towards us. Out of his love, out of his unwavering 
desire to bring glory to himself. He saved the most unworthy of sinners like me, like us. And only Christ can do this. Only Christ, through faith, through grace alone, and through faith alone. And there is no other name under heaven. As, Paul, as Peter says in Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven by which one must be saved. So I beg you this evening, if you are not in Christ, if you are not his, come to him. If, have, if you have heard his voice, do not turn away. Do not, do not turn a deaf ear. Do not look at other things, but come to him. I beg you, I plead with you, do not go away from this place despising him. Because God is indeed offering him. That is the offer of the gospel. It is for everyone who hears. If you would turn from your sins, if you would trust in the Lord in faith, if you would rest upon his work as a beggar opens his hands empty and says, give me of your goodness. I promise you this. No matter the sins you've committed, no matter how disgusting and grievous and rotten they were, no matter how uh, secret they were, they all known to God, no matter the amount of sin you've committed, if you turn to him in faith and repentance, if you seek his forgiveness, he will not cast you out. He will receive you. He will embrace you. He will save you. He will put his spirit upon you. And you will have peace with him. And you will have peace, the peace of God throughout your life. That is the message. I said I wouldn't use this term, but it, that is the message of Christmas. That is the message which we should celebrate, not just on the 24th, 25th of December, not just on the December Advent season, but that we should celebrate all throughout our lives, throughout our year. The message that we can have peace with God, that we can have a meaningful, continued relationship with the, the Almighty God, relationship that we will eventually culminate in heaven and that's the gift that we should receive that's the <laughs> gift that we should look for and that's the gift that is worthy of us celebrating it not just this evening but throughout our lives and let us sing joy